That's right. I mean, Chinese medicine, as you know, is a, is a most incredible um, art and a, and a craft and a science. Uh, we get to use what's been honed over thousands of years and apply it to diseases in modern day and can make a real significant difference. Uh, so it's very rewarding, of course, as well as um, keeping the, the wolf from the door. I'm Michael Max, and this is Geological, the podcast that curates East Asian medicine and methods through the power of conversation. I don't know anything. I frequently hear this from students and new practitioners. You know what? It's not true. What's more, it doesn't help to hold ourselves small, just like it doesn't help to puff ourselves up. You do know something, and that something is likely part of what led you to acupuncture school and kept you there. It's what led you into a practice and all the paths followed that took you to someplace unexpected. Often enough, the problem isn't that we don't know, but that we think we do. Getting free of the traps of possible or not, cultivating a fertile sense of not knowing that opens an inquiry into new understanding, that is how to steer when navigating new territory. Because, for sure, there are things to know and processes to understand, but if you don't acquire the knowledge for doing the work, then you can't do the work. But at the same time, avoiding the limits that arise from the last time that something worked well, that kind of certainty, it's best held lightly. For sure, you need the mind of an engineer to work out certain herbal formulas You need the broad, inquisitive, and observational mind of an evolutionary biologist to explore novel terrain, along with the discipline to hold your own feet to the fire of learning, especially when you're missing some key point, and clinic generates more discomfort and confusion than understanding and ability. Learning medicine is hard, but then so is learning to cook well, or play a musical instrument with fluency, or figure out how to disagree with someone that you care about in a way that strengthens the relationship. Lifelong learning sounds good when discussed over coffee, but the practice is another story. It's a process of constantly reassembling what you think you know as your maps of the world get redrawn by the experiences that you have. It's a grueling practice, and yes, it can leave you imagining that you know nothing. But that is not true. It's just that knowledge and what it does to you can be disruptive. The Chinese say, meaning live to an old age, you'll be constantly learning. Sometimes I take this phrase as a reminder of the opportunities that come with living long enough to have some perspective. Other times, it feels like a threat. One thing for sure, there's always something new up around the bend. And again, it doesn't mean you don't know anything, but that your knowing, often enough, requires some remodeling along the way. Learning how to learn and developing the capacity to recognize mistakes and use them in a way to correct your errors, it's essential 
to the practice of medicine. Especially when it comes to practicing herbal medicine, you'll need a clear idea of what's going on before you can craft a targeted, effective, and safe prescription. And fortunately, we can more easily these days access the experience of doctors from the past and, for that matter, doctors of the present. In this conversation, I sit down with Mazen Alkafaji to discuss treating dermatological problems with Chinese herbal medicine. As Mazen points out in this conversation, because the patient's problem is showing up in plain sight on the surface of the body, you don't need to deduce an internal pathomechanism because it's showing up right in front of you. And if you know how to read the story on the skin, you can be very helpful to your patients. Effective herbal formulas have a beauty in them in how they match the patient and in so doing, shift their physiology. It is a remarkable medicine. We'll get into all of that and plenty more. Stay with us. These conversations come to you through the generous support of our sponsors and members. All the sponsors here provide helpful products or services that you'll find beneficial in your clinical work. Worried that an EMR is too complex for you? Jane has friendly and knowledgeable support. Mayway Herbs is celebrating the 55th year of their family business. You're invited to make use of their vast library of resources. Are you concerned about the health of Mother Earth? AccuFast Needles is doing something about that. You can too. And later in the show, Ancestral Sturman offers up a sinew treatment, and the folks at Blue Poppy have something special to share as well. Do be sure to visit the sponsors page on the Geological website to take advantage of all the special offers our terrific sponsors have for listeners of the podcast. I don't know about you, but sometimes I take a step back and marvel at my acupuncture needles. I mean, they're the world's simplest medical tool, a sharpened wire and a handle. That's it. And with this simple tool, hundreds of health conditions can be resolved. I love it. What I didn't love was the amount of packaging waste I generated at the end of the day. But that has now changed too. Ever since I switched to AccuFast Earth-Friendly Needles, I reduced my packaging waste by 90%. Not only are they a great needle, but the folks at AccuFast plant a tree for every two boxes of needles I use in the clinic. By switching to AccuFast Needles, you'll be helping patients, planting trees, and joining a community of practitioners changing the world. Like our simple needle, being a part of this solution, it's simple too. Visit AccuFastNeedles.com slash Geological to learn how. Hi folks, I'm Yvonne Lau, president of Mayway Herbs. Our family business turns 55 this year, and we wouldn't have gotten this far without the love and support of our community. We're truly grateful and promise you that we'll continue to work hard to support you and your practice. Please visit Mayway.com to find the perfect Pumsar brand formula or formulate your own in our dispensary. Our site also has lots of articles, videos, and herbal recipes for you to explore. And tune into our podcast, Chinese Medicine Matters, for insightful discussions on all things TCM. Learn about treatment strategies and powerful herbal remedies. As we welcome the month of May, our focus is on women's health. Our newsletter articles and podcast episodes this month will highlight different aspects and unique challenges women face. So subscribe or tune in. And if you're a practitioner, get a discount on our women's health formulas this month. 
just visit Meiwei.com. This season and every season, trust Meiwei Herbs for your health and wellness needs. And thank you for supporting Real Chinese Medicine. I love how technology can help to automate my office, and I want to share with you my favorite tool for doing so, Jane. Jane is a clinic management software in EMR with a human touch. Whether you're switching your software or going paperless for the first time, the Jane team knows that the onboarding process can feel a little overwhelming. That's why with Jane, you don't just get software, you get a whole team. Included in every Jane subscription is their award-winning customer support available by phone, email, and chat whenever you need it, even Saturdays. You can also book a free account setup consultation to review your account and ensure you feel confident about going live. If you're interested in making the switch to Jane, head to jane.app/switch to book a one-on-one demo with a member of their support team. And be sure to mention the code Geological at the time of sign up for a one-month grace period on your new Jane account. Mazen Alkafaji, welcome to Geological. Thank you, Michael. It's great to be here. Delighted to have you. We got to meet each other a few months ago. I was in New York City. You were in New York City. I was taking your class on dermatology, and I have to say, you know, I don't, I'm, I don't usually plug things here on the podcast, but man, it was amazing. I came back to clinic after that two days studying with you. I looked at skin in a whole different way. In fact, I was able to sit with some patients that never mentioned a skin problem, and I'd never noticed a skin problem. And I was like, oh, what about this little thing on your hand here? And... uh it, it was really quite incredible. Very, very useful. So I'd love to talk a little dermatology here with you today. That's what I'm here for. <laughs> <laughs> you know, it, it's funny. Uh, when I first came across your name, it was on the acupuncture book that you helped to write. It wasn't for dermatology. It was for acupuncture. I, I'd like to first hear a little bit about that project, because that book, I think, is in everybody's library, and it's a tremendous resource. Tell us a little bit about that. You know, when I first started uh, studying acupuncture, it was back in uh, 79, actually, 1979. I did a three-year course, uh, uh, and actually just before I started studying, I studied on Chinese language, classical and modern language. Uh, After the three-year course, I went off to China and spent four years um, studying herbal medicine specifically. Really, I I loved acupuncture, but uh, herbal medicine was my true love. Uh, After I returned from China in, uh, when would have been, 87, uh, I had to practice acupuncture in order to make a living. Herbal medicine was pretty much unknown in those days in, in England. Um, but I was really focused on herbal medicine. That was my, my, um, my absolute focus. Uh, <clears throat> my friend Peter Dedman uh, was approached by Churchill Livingston. He was established as an acupuncturist then. And they asked him to write a book on acupuncture. As it happens, we ended up self-publishing. 
but he asked me if I was interested in the project. So really, I used my Chinese skills, my language skills, to translate uh, the works uh, on acupuncture. We then sat together and compiled the text based on those translations. So that's how it was, really. Um, in fact, at pretty much at the same time, or soon afterwards, in the late 80s, early 90s, and this leads on to my interest in dermatology, uh, I was approached by some uh, conventional dermatologists in London, some who, were, who became very interested in uh, Chinese medicine for the treatment of atopic eczema since they saw some really spectacular results using a basic formula for treating this, uh, really the most recalcitrant and difficult kinds of uh, atopic eczema. So uh, I worked with them for a while, and as a result, started getting a lot of um, uh, dermatology patients. So that was, as I say, late 80s, early 90s. And really, I've not looked back since then. My interest in dermatology has is, is sprouted other interests, specifically in uh, inflammatory disease, autoimmune disease, and allergic disease. And that's where I've spent really the last 35, 36 years uh, honing my skills in that department. Yeah. It's funny, isn't it? You get an idea to go do something, and it takes you down a certain road, and that takes you somewhere else. And then now you're prepared for a strange opportunity, like conventional medicine doctors coming to you and wanting to talk about Chinese medicine. What, what was your initial interest in Chinese medicine? I mean, 1979, that's a little bit early. <laughs> yes. Actually, I first come what across were, acupuncture. Mazen, what were you thinking? Yes. I was a youngster. Actually, the very first time I came across acupuncture was when I was a 16-year-old or 17-year-old. Uh, I saw one of these beautiful uh, acupuncture charts from the Ming Dynasty. Uh, and I totally, I got, I got inoculated like an allergy. I saw it once. It, it was the very first time I came across anything to do with Chinese medicine. The second time I came across it, a couple of years later, I was hooked. I knew, before really I knew much about Chinese medicine, that I was going to study Chinese, which is what I did. I was going to study acupuncture and I was going to go to China and study Chinese medicine. And it turned out exactly the way I'd anticipated. I mean, it could have gone wrong, but it, as it happens, it didn't. I, um, I'm very grateful for that um, focus because it's meant everything to me. Yeah, you've had a whole life and all the people you've been able to help. That's right. I mean, Chinese medicine, as you know, is a, is a most incredible um, art and a, and a craft and a science. Uh, we get to use what's been honed over thousands of years and apply it to diseases in modern day and can make a real significant difference. I think uh, so too. So it's very rewarding, of course, as well as... Um, keeping the, the wolf from the door. Yeah. <laughs> you know, as more and more people use Chinese medicine, as it becomes not a strange thing, but to some degree integrated, 
into Western medicine, it seems to me there's the possibility of losing some of the, how do I say, uniqueness of it as we try to fit it into Western medicine. And yet, here you are with your work, very much leaning on Chinese medicine all by itself. And I'm curious to get your take on using that tremendous tradition and the amazing things that herbal medicine can do and how you work side by side, not necessarily fit in, but work with the conventional medicine. Let you get your thoughts on that. Well, you know, I had a lot of good contacts with uh, conventional doctors in Europe and also in America uh, over the years. This has been the case in Europe, particularly uh, originally in the UK with those studies that I mentioned where um, uh, really uh, it, it launched Ch dermatology or it launched Chinese medicine in the UK because the results were so spectacular and, uh, you know, proven from a Western perspective using a double-blind crossover trial. But really it was also very limited in many ways because we were fixed with one formula and you had to choose the patient to suit the formula. So there was no way these uh, studies could accommodate Chinese medicine's sophistication. Uh, but really it, it, it was... Uh, it demonstrated efficacy without question of the doubt, lack of toxicity. So from that point of view, uh, actually the doctors uh, who ran those trials recognized very quickly that they were working with a, a very weak model because all they had to do was choose the patient to suit the formula. And after that, they couldn't really manipulate the formula further because they had no understanding of Chinese medicine. That was one of my jobs, actually, was to treat patients who had not responded to a standardized formula. And by making adjustments, I could demonstrate that actually those were relevant and made a difference to the patient. I now have good contacts in uh, Germany and Switzerland, uh, particularly with conventional doctors, uh, and also in the U.S., uh, particularly with uh, Shou uh, Ming Li, the uh, doctor who's done a lot of good work on uh, allergies, treatment of allergic disease and um, asthma. She's published widely. So really, any way of examining Chinese medicine that's fair to Chinese medicine, in other words, allows it to uh, use the methods that it has developed, will show great uh, efficiency in, in treatment because it, it really does work time and time again. You can see that. And not only in the short term, what, what, what I've found over these decades of practice is that you can resolve many, many cases or change the intensity of the disease so that it's livable with or, or really eradicate it completely as long as people maintain a, a reasonable uh, standard of uh, lifestyle, you know, eating well, sleeping well, and so on, then, you know, otherwise conventionally um, difficult diseases to treat, they can be sent into the long grass very effectively. It, it's always been interesting to me with the Chinese herbs that we have the potential to change a person's physiology, not just get, get rid of symptoms, 
but shift the physiology in a way that is significant enough that they can be symptom-free, or maybe not symptom-free, but certainly living a much more comfortable life. And again, it's not coming from just taking care of a symptom. It's coming from the physiology being fundamentally different. Yeah, that's absolutely correct. Because, you know, we might enter and understand how to tackle a condition by examining symptoms and signs. But really, that leads us to resolving the issue at a deeper layer, uh, restoring an equilibrium, really, which is in many ways a birthright. You know, we have the wherewithal. Mm -hmm. People take it for granted that we wake up in the morning and things work and you eat and you uh, breathe and you can maintain things in that way. Actually, for disease to arise, then these significant, substantial factors that maintain life are disturbed. Now, Chinese medicine understands that you can restore that equilibrium if you approach it in the right way. So uh, I see this all the time. If a patient comes in with uh, covered in eczema, let's say, then the way I see it, there's three phases to treatment. First phase is to uh, drain that excess pattern, that inflammatory pattern. Mostly uh, when it comes to eczema, it's draining heat from a variety of places in the body, whether it's the qi level or the blood level, the ying level, wei level. Uh, Once that is achieved, then the eczema will clear. But if you abandon the patient at that stage, then things will just return. So it's necessary to segue to what I call the harmonizing phase, which is really uh, slowly uh, removing the medicinals, whether they're bitter or acrid ones, uh, so that uh, you you can substitute them for ones that are there to stabilize, in effect, the immune system, if we mix our metaphors. And when that's successfully achieved without a relapse, then mostly you can Uh, tonify to secure the changes achieved. And I have many, many patients over the decades who really have seen an end to their uh, eczema or their psoriasis or whatever it may be using these ancient and tried and tested methods. Mazen, this makes a lot of sense to me. And it makes sense because In some ways, what I think you're talking about is homeostasis. It's an idea that I think all of us are familiar with. It's an idea that conventional medicine also has a good idea about. I know that at a certain point in my career, I conflated homeostasis with what I'm going to call proper functioning. It's possible for people to have a homeostatic balance that is dysfunctional. Homeostasis doesn't mean health or well-being. It means homeostasis. It means whatever is in place wants to stay in place. And so you can have a very strong homeostasis state in play with a disease condition. And the body, you know, we have this idea of the body wants to be well. Mm, Yeah, to some degree, but the body also wants to be stable. And if, if it's a choice between well and stable, it seems the body will choose stable. It's like bad habits, you know, all kinds of things. And so when I hear you talk about this approach here, 
first you take away the excess. Well, that's going to be a big relief. But, but that's not enough because the homeostatic balance is probably still going to want to go back to what it's used to. And so you need that phase of harmonization you know, to bring it to a different place and then the tonification to like secure it so that it, it's stabilized. Yes, absolutely right. That's uh, exactly how I think of it as well. Um, actually, it's, it's quite extraordinary that uh, sometimes it strikes me, it's quite extraordinary how people maintain some sort of homeostasis, even though it's a, 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 not a, a desired state, and yet still manage to live a longish life. But this is an unhealthy life. So, yes, what we're after is to maximize uh, really the, the, the proficiency of the body, the body-mind system, so that it can maintain that state which is optimal. And, of course, the, like any living organism, if you get close to that, then it's much easier for that to be uh, continued. So I'm not a surfer, but when you see a surfer riding a wave, if they're sitting on the wave in the proper way, then it's effortless. If they yes. have to swim to catch up, <laughs> and uh, you put a lot of effort in and you don't get very far or you just maintain that homeostasis, as you say, but it's not a desired state. Yeah. It sounds like recently you're also very much looking at inflammatory disease, which, which makes sense because I mean, when I think about dermatological conditions, most of them are inflammatory in one way, shape, or form. Yeah, totally. Actually, the way I see pretty much all diseases are inflammatory. I mean, certainly the conditions I see. I see a lot of autoimmune conditions, uh, particularly um, uh, ulcerative colitis and Crohn's disease, Graves' disease, Hashimoto's disease, uh, and rheumatoid arthritis, a lot of rheumatic diseases. Uh, really, the same principles apply, though, of course, we use slightly different uh, compounds, ingredients, and there are different priorities. But in essence, uh, in most of these conditions, you first have to gain control over the manifestation of that disease. And you need to be able, of course, to see the change quite clearly. It's not haphazard. If somebody comes in with um, ulcerative colitis and they have diarrhea 15, 20 times a day, with blood and mucus, abdominal pain, fevers, joint pains, ulceration of the mouth and tongue. These are all very common. And really, in my experience, Chinese medicine can control that within a few days, really equivalent to uh, the efficacy of prednisone. No question about that at all. I've seen so many cases by now. So really, Chinese medicine's concepts, if they're applied correctly, are extremely powerful. And uh, once you've secured that, that first state, once you've put the fire out, and mostly it is fiery, then you, it becomes a, a really, I'd say, a more skilled job to manipulate the situation uh, and abandon the bitter and the acrid ingredients and substitute them for ones that are able to restore and soothe and replenish uh, the body so that 
if patients uh, maintain a reasonable lifestyle, then they can have every expectation in many of those conditions, such as colitis, not to have a relapse. Or if they have a relapse, it would be due to something that's identifiable and they need to just make sure that their lifestyle is commensurate with their condition. So, uh, it, yeah, it's not necessary, as is the case in, in modern medicine, to continue to suppress immune function, but rather to restore the immune system to a, a stable state that can uh, self-regulate. That makes total sense to me, given what I know about Chinese medicine, or at least what I think I know about it, certainly the principles involved. You just said something that really got my attention, which was you could take something very, you know, full-on flare with colitis and get results with herbs commensurate with what people would get with prednisone. Now, I believe you. What I find really interesting, and, I, and I'm sure you ran into this in China. I know that I did. And I think we hear this a lot here in the West as well. There's this idea that Chinese medicine is for chronic conditions and things respond slowly. And Western medicine is better for acute conditions where you need for things to respond more quickly. Now, I remember hearing this a lot in China because I spent a little time there as well. And I kept thinking to myself, well, it depends because if you get the right herbs in the right condition, you know, for the condition, especially for things like like, you know, a respiratory infection or something, you should see results pretty quickly. And, and so I'm curious to know, um, I'm curious to know your thoughts more about that. And I'm going to ask you too, are you familiar with Eric Karshmer in the book that he wrote recently? Uh, no, I'm not, but I'm always interested oh. in good books. So yeah. Okay. So, um, this is just a little side note because I, I I would like to get into this a little bit. He went to China as an anthropologist to study Chinese medicine in the, uh, I want to say the 1990s, I think. And he ended up getting so interested, he decided to study Chinese medicine. So he's an anthropologist and a Chinese medicine doctor at this point. He's got a book out called uh, Prescriptions for Virtuosity, and he it's a fantastic uh, look anthropologically and sociologically at how the medicine changed from being used quite often and quite effectively back in the Republican era for acute conditions to becoming the medicine for Manxing Bing, right? For, for more chronic conditions. Chronic so I, I think a lot of us here in the West we have cotton to that idea. And we often believe that, oh yeah, we can treat the chronic stuff, but we can't necessarily treat the acute stuff. And I think that's a misconception. I think it's, yeah, yes. so this is just a long way of, of coming around to, <clears throat> I think it's a misconception that we can't treat things quickly. And you have experience with this. So for the listeners out here who may not understand, wow, I could get, Results commensurate with prednisone. Tell us more how to think about that. Yes, not only that, I'll tell you. So it's really by now, I'm, uh, I see a lot of patients with colitis. I mean, I'd see uh, half a dozen or more patients 
every week and I see patients typically every four or five weeks. And it's quite common, in fact, because there's a, a long waiting list, if a patient phones up with ulcerative colitis, then they're fast-tracked. I will see them uh, that day or the next day, even if I don't actually have to see them face-to-face. -face. I'll just give the details. That's how uh, confident I am to be able to uh, change their state. Actually, if you look at prednisone or prednisolone, as it is in the, in the UK, a recent study, a big study, demonstrated that a patient with ulcerative colitis who gets a typical uh, prednisolone, prednisone course, which is 40 milligram uh, after a week tapering by, by 5 milligram, they, those patients have twice the relapse rate uh, subsequently compared to patients who've not been treated in that way. And I see this in my practice all the time. So as I say, it's almost invariable that a patient, you get sometimes some very unusual cases, but honestly, 90% plus, 95% of patients prescribe the correct ingredients. You can control that diarrhea and bleeding within a week to 10 days and usually more rapid. So after a day or two, things have settled uh, and then by a couple of weeks, you need to start changing the formula and uh, distance yourself from more bitter ingredients and, as I say, head towards the harmonizing phase. So, yes, I agree with you. Chinese medicine is very effective at treating acute phase disease, but you have to get the right approach. You have to marry the patient's symptoms and signs to the right formula. And that's what Chinese medicine is. It's really a nuanced, sophisticated medicine, uh, and if you know how to uh, use those methods, then results can be extremely fast. I mean, the same thing with um, eczema and psoriasis. These are the big other diseases I see. Uh, you should be able to control changes uh, that are clearly demonstrable uh, within a, a very short period of time. And, you know, patients who come in, typically they forget how severe their eczema is or their psoriasis. I take pictures of every patient that comes in. I have a little studio room in my office. And uh, after a few weeks of treatment, sometimes patients say, well, I don't think there's any change. So I then dig out the pictures and show them. And they're astonished how, how remarkable uh, the change has been, actually. So, yeah, there's no question. Um, properly applied Chinese medicine is very powerful medicine. Hello, everyone. Anne Cecil Sturman here. A working knowledge of the eight extraordinary channels from the unbroken oral tradition of acupuncture is valuable beyond words. The power of these channels is tremendous if the practitioner has well-integrated diagnostic, theoretical, and practical skill. You'll be familiar with Dumai, the governor channel or the sea of Yang, the primal reservoir of Yang, which ultimately finances all movement and growth. But this channel also governs the ability to self-determine. The psycho-emotional presentation of your patients can be matched to a classical activation of this channel, clearing impedance in the free flow of Yang Qi to body, mind and spirit. <laughs> 
I'd like to share with you the marvelous potency of the Do Channel in a full-length live treatment video from the seminar I taught last year in Melbourne, Australia. It's at ancecilsturman.com forward slash sinews2024. Click on the jump to free teaching button or see the link on my Instagram page at ancecilsturman. Thanks, Michael. Back to you. You, you just bring something up that I noticed when I first got out of school and it drove me crazy, which is that you ask patients how they are and they're like, eh, maybe a little better. About the same, maybe a little better. You hear this a lot. I'm not sure it's working. And what I found when I heard, oh, maybe better, not sure, it was either nothing had changed and they're trying to be nice. Oh yeah, a little better, right? Or something had changed dramatically and they actually had forgotten about it. I, I think we've all had the experience of people coming in with back pain or knee, you know, whatever, musculoskeletal thing of some sort, or their sleep is terrible, right? Or they wake up to pee six times a night. And you ask, how are you? Not ask, how's your urination? Just like, how are you, right? And they're like, eh, about the same. And then you ask about the urination or the back pain or the this or that, and they go, I don't have that. Mm-hmm. And it was right at the top of their intake form the first time they came in. It's as if there's a kind of amnesia that people get about having been ill. Have you noticed this? I mean, yes, clearly I you have because uh, you're taking pictures. Yeah, that's, I would say, universal. And maybe not an unhealthy trait because when mm. people get better, they forget about their disease. That is definitely so. So actually, I will, I will uh, qualify that a little bit. So typically, if a patient comes in, and let's say they're covered in eczema, and you'd expect to see significant change within three or four weeks of treatment. So they'll typically notice that. But subsequent to that, you know, at week eight, let's say, they say, oh, I don't think much has changed now. You know? And they want to impel you to do better. But it's understandable that they kind of forget what it was like. And really, they're shocked when you see them, the original pictures. Uh, so, yeah, I think it's, it's fairly common. But that's one of the real advantages of dermatology, mm. is that there's nowhere to hide, nor, not for the doctor and not for the patient. Because if you, if you take a picture of the condition, uh, then you're working with that as a background. You need to resolve that condition. Uh, and that's, uh, that's a real advantage, I would say, in, in treatment of skin disease or very acute disease such as colitis. There's, you can measure things very precisely. If it's something more uh, ambiguous, it's a kind of state of mind that's not uh, quite secure or something like this, then it's more difficult to, to pin it down. But the advantages of dermatology, actually one of the many advantages, I would say, other ones being that you, you see the disease manifest on the skin. So you get to know what damp heat looks like or what toxic fire looks like, what heat of the blood level looks like, and, and so on. Uh, in fact, I would say that it's, that is one, me uh, specializing in dermatology over the decades has led me to be a better doctor of Chinese medicine because I can uh, more clearly visualize other components that otherwise are not there to be seen. 
And because it's there on this skin and it's there in front of your eyes, you, you can see very directly what's going on. For things that are less visible, we have to rely on the tongue and we have to rely on the pulse and, and reports from the patients about what's going on. There's all that. One of the things I found very interesting in taking your class was how tongue and pulse many times really were not that helpful in treating what were very, very severe conditions. So obviously severe conditions. You look at the skin, clearly it's there, but then you look at the tongue and it's like that. It, it was unexpected, I should say, in many, mm. many cases. I found that very surprising. Yes, the way I see the tongue and the pulse, really like other symptoms and signs, you can't be a slave to them. You can see people who, who might go through a process of a differential diagnosis of pattern type uh, in great minutiae. And at the end, they look at the tongue and all of that knowledge that they've uh, amassed is thrown out of the window. And they say, oh, well, no, the tongue is pale. Therefore, all of that stuff that shows heat and toxin and dampness and is irrelevant. And really, they miss a trick, in my opinion. I've convinced myself over the years, because I've taken pictures of tongues and skin. Uh, I mean, I have thousands, tens of thousands of pictures. And I did a lot of my study via studying those images. The tongue can be uh, very useful, or it could be irrelevant. There's a saying, actually, in Chinese medicine that you take the tongue and the pulse as primary and you ignore the symptoms and signs. And there's the exact opposite saying. So you ignore the tongue and the pulse and you take the symptoms and signs as primary. Really, it boils down to a, a superior doctor knows when to ignore certain things or when to uh, tuck it away for another day. Let's say the tongue is now irrelevant because... You can make all sorts of um, uh, extrapolations. Some people say, well, it's on the skin, therefore it's not manifesting on the tongue. And I think there is some truth in that. Um, for example, I pay much more attention to the tongue in digestive disease than I do for skin disease. I mean, I'll always look at the tongue and always feel the pulse and try and marry the whole thing together. Uh, but you get a lot of uh, ambiguity. There's no question about that. Things aren't as smooth and easy as people might imagine. No, it's not. And here's something odd that I've noticed. I don't work with digestion as a specialty, but you know, I get my fair share with people with colitis or various digestive issues. I have had patients, and they're coming in with a colitis diagnosis, I'm expecting to see a tongue that's probably red, it's probably greasy, it's probably showing some heat and some dampness. And the weird thing is, Mazen, <clears throat> if I was just looking at the tongue and trying to guess what a person's problem was, with these people I would not guess digestion. Because their tongue yeah. looks pretty good. Mm -hmm. I found that very, very interesting how much it didn't match what I expected to see. And this raises another question for me as a practitioner, which is how often am I looking at signs and symptoms and then making up a story based on what I think I'm supposed to see as opposed to really getting what is going on for a patient so I can help them? 
Yeah, you put your finger on a very important point and something that I've um, struggled with as well over the years. Uh, so what you say is completely correct. I mean, just before Christmas time, I had a patient with a severe colitis and the tongue was really insignificant as far as the presentation. So the patient had, uh, you know, 10, 15 times a day, diarrhea, tonismus, blood and mucus and pus and night fevers. These are very classic presentation. And yet the tongue uh, was, looked pretty normal. I mean, I completely ignored that, obviously. And the patient got bitter draining medicines. And then within a very short period of time, they were better. I've actually, since then, I've, uh, I get email and maintained uh, treatment and moved away from the bitter ingredients slowly but surely and substituted for other ones that are more relevant. So I think, yeah, it's, it's very important to, to recognize the manifestation that the patient presents with and treat that. And you should have your answer pretty quickly. If you've done the wrong thing, then you're not going to get a result. And above all, medicine is practical. We need to be able to achieve the change that we're after. Otherwise, you know, any pontification, any theoretical background is just so much theory. Theory should serve practice, and practice should uh, be informed by theory, but you can't be a slave to one or the other. Yeah, for sure. And all it takes is a, a little bit of practice and recognizing, hey, here's a good idea. Oh, it doesn't work out to, uh, to help correct the errors in the forest of medicine, so to speak. There's that. I, you know, I suspect people who have very acute issues, they, they've got that, you know, 15 times a day diarrhea or the skin incredibly inflamed. I would expect that they should see a result faster than, than not if you're on the right track. As long as you've got the right medicines and the right dosage as well, I suspect you're dosing these at pretty high levels. Is that correct? Yes. You know, my training was in China where doses are higher. And absolutely, not only the formula has to be correct, but the dose has to be correct. And most patients don't hang around. If you're not going to treat them so that they see a change quickly, they're not going to continue the treatment. It's expensive and unpleasant to drink and so on. They need to see the change. Uh, I guess my doses are high. Yes, they are high. Uh, and also I use um, these cooking machines that uh, accentuate that. So you can get more extraction by cooking under high pressure. So that definitely adds and helps. Um, but it's always also been the case with me that in order to in order to to uh, to proceed to progress and understand how it is that manipulating a formula ends up making changes in the in the patient, you have to move quite fast. If it's slow, then it's very difficult to see that it was your intervention that caused that change. I recall in the first 10 years of my practice, I really, I 
demanded from myself that I could be convinced that it was me who was making these changes, that by prescribing these ingredients and by changing an ingredient, I will be able to see the change occur in the patient. And I'm pretty sure if I use small doses or if I use granules, I'm not a great fan of granules, uh, then those changes will be much more difficult to detect or they will take much longer to achieve. So then it makes it very difficult to, to know that it was your intervention that created that change. Does that make sense? That makes a lot of sense. And what's more, I think that's not a bad standard to hold ourselves to. Yeah. I, I remember as a student how much courage it would take to actually come up with a diagnosis and then go straight at it with everything that I could muster. Because if I was wrong, I could make people worse. And there certainly is an element of, of that I think all of us have to go through that kind of development of being able to diagnose, being able to treat directly, not cover our bases, not a little bit of this, a little bit of that, but really focus and aim the treatment at what we think we see. If they get better, it's from the treatment. If they get worse, well, we've learned something. You know, sometimes people come in, and, and I've done this both with herbs and with acupuncture, where I've made people worse, right? It's, it's part of learning to be a practitioner. And it, it's, it's kind of funny, too. People ask, well, does, does acupuncture work? Well, yeah, it does. How do we know? Well, it made me worse. It does something. <laughs> I've had those experiences, right? And, and we laugh about it a little bit. Hopefully, I've got a good enough relationship with the patient that, that okay, now we know what not to do. Let's do what, what might be more helpful. That, I think that's part and parcel of becoming a practitioner, is, is having the, the toolkit well enough in hand that we can apply it and then holding ourselves to that standard of, yes, what I did helped you, or yes, what I did did not help, but now I know more about your condition and we can turn that around. I don't know any other way of learning besides going through some of that. Have you got shortcuts or ideas about that? Well, of course, to learn from somebody who has experience will help you achieve those shortcuts. Um, I can give you an example. You know, one of the features that you get with eczema patients, atopic eczema, so there are many different kinds of eczema, but now we're talking about atopic eczema, the most common form. One of the common features that you see is that they don't sweat very much. In fact, they, despite vigorous exercise, they don't sweat. So that means something. It means you need to include ingredients that will vent the surface. And this comes straight from the Wen Bing tradition, where you're not using um, warm medicinals, warm acrid medicinals to cause a sweat, but you're using cool acrid ingredients that uh, encourage the rash to the surface and open up the sweat pores to allow that heat to come out. Let's say a patient comes in who, is not, who has no sweat, has widespread eczema, uh, let's say in this case due primarily to heat at the blood level and the yin level. Uh, if the, that same patient uh, sweated, then you'd better not use some ingredients that would otherwise be 
absolutely essential. If that same patient who sweated, who doesn't sweat, also suffered with constipation, then in that instance, if they don't exhibit signs of heat in the afternoon, then you shouldn't purge, but you should encourage movement of the bowel using medicinal such as nilbangza, uh, which actually does exactly that. It, uh, togen in Chinese, this encourages the rash to the surface. If, on the other hand, the patient came in and they did sweat and they suffered with constipation, then you're better off using dahua. So there are many, many such uh, shortcuts that you just need to learn. Uh, and if you have somebody who's got that experience, who can tell you when you see this, that, and the other, then do this. Once you do it and you're actually able to see the change, you'll never forget that. If you've managed to, to make that link and you've created a change in the patient that endures, then you've learned something very valuable. So this kind of generic understanding of Chinese medicine is not, I mean, it's, a, it's the first base. It's, this, it's what you learn when you're a student. But really, most of the learning happens in the decades that follow that. And especially if you focus on particular types of conditions, because you hone your skill in that way. So what I've just described, for example, about atopic eczema doesn't apply to psoriasis. You have to learn a whole other set of principles, which can, which can sort of overlap for sure. But really, you need to know that when you're cooling blood in the case of psoriasis, then you should think of somewhat different ingredients to, to cooling blood in the case of eczema or with damp heat, or with toxic heat, or whatever it may be. So really, these conditions are much more specific than a kind of a generic understanding of what Chinese medicine tells us. Mm -hmm. So the, the principles hold true. Oh, there's heat, you need to clear that. But then you have to become more nuanced. What kind of heat and what kind of person? And where is that heat? Absolutely. And I mean, where is that heat? Yeah. Yes, that's very, very important. I mean, there are so many examples like this that are that really have come through the ages um, that are absolutely essential if you are going to achieve good results in practice. So if we if we carry on, I think um, I love to teach through example. That's why dermatology really suits me because I, I can show pictures of the patient as they came in. I can show pictures after two or three weeks of treatment and see how changes have occurred. And then subsequently, every few weeks, you can see what has happened in response to the change of the formula. So let's say a patient comes in with eczema and they also have cold extremities, which is quite a common one as well. They have... Uh, Rujia in Chinese, this is heat reversal. If they have that, this is a, a sign of heat, even though their hands and feet are cold. Um, you have to question them further. Do you have yellow urine, for example? Yellow urine is a, not only an indication that the body is trying to expel heat via urination, uh, 
but it's also a sign that the yin is being damaged. So when you focus on that, you need to activate urination, but you have to be very cautious because doing too much of that will create further damage. And this is really clinically very relevant. So if I, for example, when you're faced with a patient with this kind of eczema, with cold extremities and dark urine, then you have to question, do you feel hot during the day? How much heat is there present? Do you, do you experience uh, agitation and restlessness? Is it, do you have insomnia? All these add to the amount of heat that there is present. And your clinical judgment should be, ah, in this case, what I need to do is to use bland diuretics, and I need to couple it with ingredients that are protective to the yin. If, on the other hand, a patient is more robust and the heat is extreme, even though the yin is being damaged, you might rather use bitter diuretics because the results are faster. So it's all about judgment. And the more experience you have in one field, the more you're able to see that uh, just by observing some very simple signs or questioning the patient in very specific ways. And like you said, with certain conditions, once you see it and you've treated it and, and you know how that works, it makes it easier the next time around. Oh, yes. No, most certainly. And if you've had the experience of, uh, as you say, if you've made a mistake, that is certainly a way of learning. But if you've had a success and you've discovered why that success has occurred, then that is, you never forget such a thing. In my early days, I mean, I still do that now, but I will look at the pictures of the patient and say, well, why hasn't this worked? What, are those, what am I missing here? And by making alteration to the formula and creating a change that, that uh, manifests as a clearing of the skin, then you've learned something really, really valuable. And really, you, that's Chinese medicine's um, cumulative experience. That's what we, we do when we study uh, classical texts and uh, you know, clinical experience of veteran doctors. In recent years, the Sa'am acupuncture style has generated significant interest and a loyal and growing following. In the Sa'am approach, a precise diagnosis leads to a four-needle treatment to address the five element and six chi imbalances in the body. The four needles target the controlling and generating cycles. It's common using this method for the needle sensation to be stronger than in many other styles. Thus, the choice of needle becomes important. The Unico brand of needles lends itself to both strong and gentle techniques. These superior needles are made of uncoated Japanese surgical stainless steel and feature the best guide tube on the market with its unique beveled edge. Additionally, Unico needles have a tensile property that helps with freehanding needles into Jingwell points and allows you to more easily feel the arrival of chi. Blue Poppy is the exclusive importer and distributor of Unico needles. Use the code QI2024 to save 10% off Unico needles at www.bluepoppy.com. You'll be glad you did. I've heard it said that uh, in learning anything, 
of course, we can learn it on our own. But if we've got a teacher to help us avoid the mistakes, we can go a lot further, a lot faster. I had a teacher when I was in school who would say to us, you know that you know an herb or a formula when you've used it and it's worked and you've used it and it hasn't. And in both instances, you know why. Yeah, that sounds pretty sound. <laughs> yes, that's pretty good. <laughs> I, that stuck with me a long time. But it, it takes time and it takes experience and it takes paying attention, you know, and, and being willing to look at where have I fallen short with this? Because if you're not seeing the clinical results, somewhere we've fallen short. Yep. It all boils down to that in the end. As I say, the theory has to serve practice and practice can be informed by theory, but you can't be a slave to that. You have to be able to see the results. And uh, yeah, with more acute manifestation of disease, it really is a, a easier place to discover what is effective and what isn't. Because if it's not effective, it's there in your face. If somebody comes in with a mild condition and it's a bit, you know, they're not even sure what it is, they feel un uncomfortable or they're not satisfied, then these are much more difficult to pin down. But you're treating, uh, if you're treating acute conditions and you can escort them from that acute stage to a stable equilibrium, then you really, you see the, the uh, strength of Chinese medicine. Yes, and you learn faster. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Now, you've been treating, you said recently, more inflammatory disease. You've been paying attention to it. Allergies. One of the things that I've certainly noticed, and I think everybody's noticed in the past couple of few decades, is dramatic increase in allergies, food allergies in particular. I'd like to get your thoughts on that. Yeah, I mean, there's an increase not just in allergies, but in autoimmune disease and allergic disease. You know, if we talk about uh, in atopy, which is allergic disease. So in the 60s, the 1960s, in the UK, and I expect this pretty much the same in the US, they say there were about 2% of the population were atopic, which means they have a propensity to eczema, asthma, rhinitis, and allergies, food allergies. Today, the, the, uh, the percentage is closer to 40%. So that's happened in, you know, in 60, 70 years. That must be due to environmental factors. And I think it's not difficult to extrapolate and say it must be diet, it must be living conditions, it must be lack of or reduced movement that people do. It's the environmental factors. This is not genetics. So I think all these conditions are on the rise because people's lifestyle is poor. I mean, you look at the Neijing, you read the chapters in the Neijing where it says, why was it that in ancient times people lived to a, a long, uh, productive life? And why is it nowadays people are falling by the wayside earlier? Really, they had it all then. It's people wake up with sunrise and sleep with sunset and they eat the right foods and they conduct themselves in the right way. Their emotional state is, is uh, kept within within confines that are that our systems can cope with. I mean, nowadays things are so disrupted. I think also microbiome now, the understanding of gut microbes and so on, uh, really points to that. When 
if they're so easily influenced by the foods that we eat, then, and the immune system is, so much of the immune, immune system really resides in the gut for very obvious reasons. That's where we introduce foreign substances to our body. Then, you know, we've really taken a wrong turn by adopting a modern uh, diet. It's a disaster. You know, just uh, along those uh, along those lines, when I first started practice, you know, and I'd see colitis patients even in the, in the olden days, I never ever saw a patient below, you know, 20 or in their teens, certainly. Mm. Today, the largest cohort of ulcerative colitis patients, the largest increase is in the under six-year-olds. So it was under unheard of. six. Under yep. six. Or it may even be under four. But it's, uh, I see many patients now, children with, with this disease. So possibly antibiotic use because they're destructive to the microbiome uh, as well as dietary factors. So it's turned upside down. Yeah. It, yeah, dramatically turned upside down. I'm going to ask a question, and I know it's a little bit uh, inflammatory, but I'm going to ask it anyway. When I was a kid, we didn't get that many vaccines. I mean, we had a few. These days, kids get a dramatic amount of vaccines before they're even a year old. Do you have any sense if that might be playing a part in all of this? I, I know it's a really inflammatory topic, um, but I but I yeah. wonder. It's it, this is something that we've added in that's fairly new i think it's conceivable to in order to tease that one out you need millions of people and you need a lot of time to figure that one out but uh, i mean vaccinations in my mind are a sensible way to treat severe and uh, difficult diseases otherwise for example tetanus Mm. Or smallpox, you wouldn't want to not have a protection. But when it comes to rubella and mumps, I think it's overkill. Because actually, if you're going to protect a child against those conditions, those childhood illnesses, then they will develop other diseases, maybe more virulent diseases as a consequence. It makes sense. Because what, we're not going to be immune to disease. That's a that's a, uh, I think, uh, upside down way of thinking. You can't, you know, to be alive, you need to one day die. To, to be alive, you also become prone to illness. Your immune system needs to fight that illness. And yes, these early stages of, uh, of coming across diseases for a child are, are crucial. And just to protect them willy-nilly against relatively mild disease does not, uh, doesn't feel sensible. Against severe disease, yes. Yes, for sure. Um, I like to keep my tetanus boosted on a regular basis because, you know, I'm cutting myself and, you know, all kinds of things. You certainly don't want that. There are certain illnesses for sure you don't want them. It's interesting to think about other illnesses, let's call them more mild childhood illnesses, chicken pox, measles, uh, measles, that kind of thing. It well, measles it, may you know, may sit on the fence with that one. I mean, I wouldn't want a child of mine 
to get measles because the consequences can be severe. But chickenpox mm-hmm. or rubella. Uh, mm-hmm. I'm sorry, I was I was I, I conflated uh, rubella and measles. Um, yeah, the the more mild ones. I'm wondering, and and again, I'm I'm thinking as a Chinese medicine practitioner. I'm thinking as a person who looks at a human being like I would look at a forest or a garden or a landscape. You know, sometimes you need a fire to burn through a forest and get rid of the brush so that you don't get a giant fire burning down the entire forest. And I wonder if some of what we're doing in suppressing some of the more mild illnesses are leading to more severe and chronic illnesses later in life. Yeah, I think there is there's a lot to that. I mean, I should just say with rubella, for example, if a girl hasn't acquired rubella naturally by the time she's entering puberty, then maybe the vaccination then is valuable. Well, not maybe, I think it would be valuable just because uh, if a pregnant woman uh, gets infected with rubella, then, uh, you know, the consequences are severe. So we can be smarter about how we apply vaccinations, I think. And there is an imperative, isn't there, to maximize. Maybe pharmaceutical companies are happy to to create lots and lots of vaccines against every ill, but that does not make sense in the end. You can't protect yourself against life. You can't protect yourself against life. And sometimes life involves illness, and sometimes those illnesses bring us a kind of benefit, brings us a kind of strength. I, I mean, I, and I think about just even dealing with things like anxiety as a young person. Like, if you can learn to handle your anxiety as a young person and work through it or work beyond it, it makes you a much more robust adult, right? There are things that challenge us as human beings that are maybe in some ways for our benefit, if you look at the longer picture. Yeah, I think that's so obviously true. And your metaphor uh, of the forest fires and smaller forest fires preventing the massive ones that can occur if you don't clear the brush. I mean, that's people's experience, isn't it? If you come across things in life and you overcome them, then you become stronger. If you're always cosseted and protected, then you become weak. I mean, that's obvious. We see it all around us. So, yes, I think we've solved it, Michael. (laughs) (laughs) Well, you know, again, we've got all these great theories in Chinese medicine. We've got metaphors that can be helpful when applied at the right time in the right way. So there's that. But of course, then it's, you know, every individual case and, and, and what we see. So what is it? There's that thing about, you know, and I'm going to completely slaughter this. You you said it basically, that the important thing is practice. And the theory should serve the practice. Practice should not be a slave to theory. So there's that. So Mazen, this, this work that you do with the dermatology, it's certainly a gift to patients. And and it's a gift to our medicine as well, because it demonstrates the efficacy and the potency of Chinese medicine in very dramatic ways, right? You can take pictures on day one, you can take pictures on day 40, 
or even take pictures on day 20 and often see some results. That's powerful. You, you teach in Europe. Um, are you also bringing this to, to the United States or? Oh, yes, yes, yes. Um, if somebody was interested in learning what you're doing, how would they go about it? You know, since 2016, actually, I've been running this dermatology course, which is a 15-day course run over about eight months, so three-day weekends every six weeks or so. And I go through the 20 most common skin diseases. But prior to that, uh, the concepts that are really important to grasp in order to understand how to use ingredients correctly in order to achieve those changes. And then going through those diseases and um, specifying and underlying the important features that you need to watch out for. So after I've been teaching this course, I think I've taught it three or four times in the U.S. since 2016. Um, and I run it typically in New York and on the West Coast some, somewhere. So I've done it in Oregon and in uh, California. The next course actually I do is in, um, in April, both in New York, and I repeat the same thing because I, I usually have quite a lot of students uh, in L.A. as well. And that's a really a full training. Patient, uh, students who, who uh, sit through the course and pass the examination at the end, I'm a believer in, in uh, encouraging people to secure the information they've learned through, just through study. Uh, those who pass, and most people do pass, even though they may complain <laughs> somewhat, uh, become members of the, the ITCMDA, which is the International Traditional Chinese Medicine Dermatology Association. And it is international because by now we have about, I think, 250 uh, members. We have a website where their, uh, their names and addresses are posted. And as is the case, and this is across Europe, so we have uh, members in Germany and Switzerland and Austria and UK and Ireland and all over the place, and a lot in America and Canada. Then when patients um, contact my practice and say, can you treat me? I say, well, go and see one of my students close to you. I can't cope with all the patients I have, and this is a real easy way to to spread the word as well. By now, we have a lot of very serious practitioners in the U.S. So, so yes, uh, uh, it's possible to study uh, Great. with me coming up uh, yeah, in April. I'll put some information on the show notes page if people would yeah, like sure to learn can. to do that. I, I don't do dermatology as a specialty, but I do know this. Anytime you've got something that can help people and you help them, they tell all their friends who have that problem. Yes. <laughs> you know, it's, it's not hard to build a good practice that lets you help lots of folks when you've got something that actually helps lots of folks. Okay, I think also if you specialize, you become much more aware of the significance of, of how you adjust the formula. Uh, and you can really use that method when treating other diseases. Certainly in my experience, in my practice, it's been a, a real boon that by studying carefully a discipline such as dermatology, and you know, it's not to be sneezed at. There's, 
20 to 25% of all patients looking for treatment at an outpatients is for a skin disease. So that's a lot of patients. Well, um, and, and like I said at, at the beginning of this conversation, I took your two-day class. I came back to my practice. I noticed things that I didn't see before. And I've been able to help people with it. It's been very gratifying. Yeah. yeah. Yes, for sure. I mean, to study the lesions carefully and to understand what it is that you see and not just see a kind of a red patch or a bit of scaling or a pustule, but to understand what that means and to understand how you can resolve that gives you a real uh, understanding of how to apply Chinese medicine, not just Absolutely. for disease, but for other conditions. Yeah. Well, and it again, it's helped give me a window into what else is going on for a patient, and it's allowed me to help them with other things. So really, really helpful. Appreciate that. Mazen, thank you so much for your time today. And uh, any anything else you'd like to share with our listeners before we wind this down? Uh, first of all, it's my pleasure, uh, Michael. It's great chatting to you. Um, share with, well, just, I guess, what's really important is to keep your uh, nose to the grindstone. It takes a long time to, to learn medicine. I mean, decades. If you have access to a good teacher, uh, then learn what you can from that because experience is everything, especially in Chinese medicine. Great. Well, until next time then, thanks, Mazen. Great. Thank you, Michael. All the best to you. I've noticed that skilled and effective Chinese medicine herbalists tend to have a sense of confidence, probing curiosity, and an ability to take mistakes or unexpected reactions and use them as a way to further refine their diagnosis and formulations. Experienced herbalists have a rationale for every herb in the formula. They don't add something just in case. They take a stand with what they see and aim accordingly. I found over the years, that is a good practice, to go directly at what you think you see and know as you're weighing out the herbs that if you're wrong, you might see certain side effects. It's good training for both your knowledge and your spirit. In time, it makes you better at your work because you'll end up with confidence commensurate with your experience. And it helps to have some guidance, especially when starting out, because you need to learn how to navigate the difficult spots. And there are plenty of them. But it's doable in time and with effort. It's not for the faint of heart, but then neither is any path that requires you to put your heart into it. Thanks as always for listening. If you liked this conversation, if you learned something new or found a moment of inspired insight, share the episode with your friends. If you want to support Geological, there's just one way to do that. It's by going to the website and becoming a member or leaving a one-time contribution today. Well, folks, that's it for today. Join us again next Tuesday for another conversation that connects up the voices of our community. Mm-hmm.